the tea health show your medical lifestyle podcast brought to you by the tea clinic Good morning, this is the Tea Health Show. I'm Dr. Mark. As usual, in studio with me, Sister Elise van Aert and our lovely producer, Simpiwe. Morning, girls. Good morning. Okay. So, today we're talking about something that's very, very close to my heart. And, um, Elise, it's safe to say that it's close to the ethos um, the that underpins the, the tea clinic. Absolutely. We are going to talk about health screening, but before we go there, I actually want to just highlight something that over the past 25 years in practice has become more and more apparent to me. I, I see so many of my patients, and when I do my first consultation with them, um, it's, it's quite it's quite intense, not quite intense, it is intense. Yeah. We go through um, a medical history, a personal history, a family history. Before, we even, before I even ask them, what are the symptoms and signs with which they are there and what is it that they want to address? Now, one of the things that I ask is I always ask them, what work do you do? Because it gives us an insight into possible conditions that they might be facing. If you're working on a mine, you know what, I know that I need to be on the lookout for some lung problems or allergic conditions, or if you're working in an office, um, or if you're an executive, you know what, I know that stress is usually a, a factor in what we are dealing with. And as I go through my consultation, um, I've learned to identify the following. So many of us, and here I include myself, is so focused on our careers and what it is that we do. And when we stop and ask ourselves, are we successful mm-hmm. in what we do? We answer yes. I, I definitely answer that I'm successful in what I do. And so does the majority of my patients because most of the patients in my clinic either have their own businesses, they're in management um, or executive level. And I ask them, so how did you get there? How did you become successful? What did you have to do to get to where you are and stay where you are? And all of them say it was through hard work and dedication. And then my next question to them is, well, if you can do that to promote yourself in your job, why are you not applying that same ethos and work ethic when it comes to your own health? I, I had my sister-in-law here uh, um, and she was here on a conference and she visited us at the practice yesterday. And as I walked out of my uh, office, Alice, who's my right hand and runs everything in the office as well as my life, said to me, uh, Jackie said that, you know what, I have to make an appointment for you with an audiologist because I'm starting to battle with my hearing. And I've been complaining about this for Elise, what, a year? More than a year? (laughs) And I just never make the time to go and do my health screen. And one of the things that I want to bring across 
in today's podcasts is you might have a successful career, but without your health, that career is going to become and come to an abrupt end. So screening tests, knowing what it is that you might be facing is so important. Um, in our businesses, we do quality screening and we have uh, focus groups and, you know what, we examine where we can optimize production and um, cut down on cost. And checks and balances. But we never do it to our own health. Yeah. So today we're going to talk about screening tests and why they are important and to kick us off, I think we need to, to understand risk. Can I, can I just interrupt that um, patients need to understand that that consultation with their health practitioner is in itself a screening test as well. There you're being assessed for your stress levels, your lifestyle. It's subtle questions, but we deduce from that how your lifestyle is influencing your health as well. Um, and then out of that, you recognize and identify risks that these patients will have. Elise, I, I agree to you with, to a small amount, actually, not completely. And hear me out. Simpiwe, mm -hmm. why do you go to the doctor? Usually when there's something wrong. Okay. What happens in that consultation? Um, they'll ask about, so most of the time when I go, I'm either coughing or I'm feeling ill. So they're really asking how long um, have you been experiencing these symptoms? Have you experienced this before? Um, so that's how usually it goes. I, I don't go there just for fun. Okay. <laughs> so Elise and I think what Simpiwe have said is 99% of the times what happens in consultations with doctors. I, I agree. I, I remember... Um, at med school, you know what? And to this very day, I'm still an advocate of this, that our health system is better than that of the American uh, doctors or our health approach is better than American doctors. Because when you and I were training as m medical professionals, we had to rely on taking a medical history, mm -hmm. family history, and then a clinical examination where you actually lay your hands on the patient. Yeah. And then you made a diagnosis. We, we that worked in government uh, institutions never had the freedom of just asking for a random blood test um, or an X-ray, or a CT scan, or an MRI. We confirmed the diagnoses that we made with a targeted specialized test. Yeah. I remember having <clears throat> uh, patients, and you need a CT scan for them, or you need an ultrasound, and you had to keep them in the hospital for four or five days sure. for them to be able to get that sonar or that CT scan was a, usually a week. Yeah, I can't remember. I, I um, 
you know, it, it was not something that like in the American yeah. um, health services, you go to the ER, some doctor see you there and then suddenly there's a battery of tests that's run. And then after the results are out, then someone comes and sees you and makes a diagnosis on what they see on biochemistry on her own and x-ray. We, we didn't have that. Yeah. But in my, in my limited experience of going to other doctors, it's exactly what CMPOA says. It's not taking time to understand the patient's medical history, et cetera, et cetera. Because we need to see so many patients a day, we focus in on the problem that, that presents. Yeah in the practice. And that, that I think is an issue. And this is why when you say the consultation, when you go to the doctor is a kind of screening test, I agree with you, but only um, if you really have an old school doctor that takes half an hour instead of 10 minutes to sit with you and um, really go through with what you might not be aware that you have. Yeah, you're right. I, I think as a screening test, take the time, go and see your GP and say, to, and when you ask, okay, so what's wrong with you? Nothing. I want to know if everything is okay. Mm. Um, we, at the beginning of the year, we always talk about, okay, you have to have your annual medical. Mm. But what does that mean? Um, does it mean that you just have your blood pressure taken? Um, the doctor does what? Uh, you know, it. Um, does he do an ECG? But even if you go for your, for, an ECG? for your health screen tests annually, it's something that you don't need a doctor's referral. You don't need a referral to do those tests. Nowadays the, nowadays, the medical aides says, okay, just go for your test and we will pay for it. Um, but how do we know? And I think this is what we're going to be talking about. Yeah. Is how do we know what we need to go and do? Yeah. Well, it's, it's if I think about medical aides prescription, mm -hmm. you have to go for your pap smear once a year you, if you are sexually active. You have to go for your um, cholesterol test. I mean, they do have nurses that do these type of screenings for the members of yeah, the Yeah, but do the patients of, then actually sorry, get for the accurate? Aids. Do the patients then get accurate feedback? No. And counselling? No. So, what is the use of a screening test if the patient doesn't understand the risk? Exactly. So let's and talk, talk about, about you risk. The, the points for the insurance things. You yeah, get the points, yes. but and, 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 I think and then you can get a coffee from somewhere for yeah, free. Yes, and that's the benefit. Like I didn't. Yeah. It's, it's a tick. Yes, and then oh. I can continue with my life. That's what happens. Has <laughs> anyone ever given you feedback? Um, no. So it's more like you get the result and you're like, okay, like send this. Can you to interpret the result? No. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I don't even know what's written like half the time. I'm just like, it's done. Um, that's ticked and uh, carry on with my life. Okay. So I think we have a good starting point. Yeah. 
Let's explain risk. Yes. So, Piwe, how do you understand medical health risk? Um, I'm going to use an example that you always use on the show. No. <laughs> <laughs> like, but it's a good one, right? It's about like when you're on the road and... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and you know you're driving and you could get into an accident <coughs> but if there's rain you know it makes it it makes it worse <coughs> so i guess with health in this case um uh i would i would i would substitute the car with your body and i would substitute like the other risks with the minimum risk like what you eat and if you get like basic exercises but then you kind of increase it they say if you are sexually active if you smoke if you drink like True. You, you, that's how i would see it in my mind it's correct okay. but i think risk sometimes can be very scary if you don't understand how risk apply to you personally mm-hmm. Is this including like family history now? When 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 you make, say it applies absolutely, to me? yeah, absolutely. Okay. So you are right in saying that risk is all around us. Mm-hmm. I sneeze. There's a risk of you getting a cold. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. So and we saw that with COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, if you were indoors away from other people, your risk was far lower of getting COVID than if you were out and about amongst other people. Yeah. But let's stay with COVID. So let's say you were out amongst Mm -hmm. other people and you were overweight, you had an existing heart condition, Mm -hmm. you were diabetic, you had an existing lung problem, your risk of developing your age was age was also a factor. Mm-hmm. Um, you you had a higher risk of developing a more serious infection, and this is exactly true when it comes to risk. These risk factors that are inherent, mm-hmm. and here we are looking at the stuff like age and sex, ethnicity. Genetics. Mm-hmm. We can't change our genetics. And families. You know, that's and then family. the other one is family medical conditions. Yeah. But the thing, there are things that we can change. And this is lifestyle. You know what? Smoking, alcohol use, uh, inactivity, obesity, etc., etc., are risk factors that you can change. Please go back to family history. I like when you talk about it during consultations. That if this family history of, for instance, heart disease, doesn't mean that you will end up with heart disease in the end. It's so just this is exactly what you say, Elise. Um, it's it's that analogy that Simpiwe alluded to. Yeah, I'm driving in my car. There's a risk that I might be in an accident. Mm. Always. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's say you're alone on a deserted road. You still have a risk of being in an accident. Yeah. The tire might burst. Is that, high, is that uh, risk highly likely? No. Mm. There's a risk that you, if you're on a deserted road, something might run over the road. We've seen, mm. you know, what, a random antelope just suddenly bound over the road. Mm. <clears throat> and you swerve. You don't even hit it. You swerve. But you know what? 
you're in an accident. It might not be a serious accident, but... And then we change that, um, like we've seen in the last couple of days. I'm driving in my car, it's peak hour traffic, and it is pissing down with rain. My visibility is next to zero. And the other people are thinking this is a nice Sunday afternoon Kailami session. Mm -hmm. The risk of an accident happening and you being involved in that accident changes because the environmental factors have changed. Yeah. Now, the moment that we speak about family history, I think we need to maybe differentiate between genetics, pure genetics, yeah. um, and then family history, family trades. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can I ask a question as well? Um, and I'm just use, like thinking about like how I grew up. I grew up with my gran and my sister. Um, so if I had to come and see you now, Dr. Mark, and you're asking me about family history, how would I obtain that or obtain the right information so that I could share with you as well? So it's quite interesting when I ask my patients and every single patient, I go through, how old is your mother? Is she still alive? Mm -hmm. What is her health condition? Mm -hmm. Has she had any serious illnesses like heart attacks or strokes, Mm -hmm. cancer, diabetes, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, dementia, stuff, stuff like that? Um, and I have patients who have been adopted. Mm. You know what? Suddenly, I'm a little bit in the dark. You know, yeah. it's how do I relay to a patient who I see have elevated cholesterol levels and an elevated blood pressure? And how do I emphasize? But you're putting yourself at risk if they have no relation in. Uh, to someone who's gone through that. Yes. Because the majority of the patients who say, you know what, my mother ha- has been battling with high blood pressure and she's diabetic. Um, and then I ask, Is, has anyone ever had a heart attack or a stroke? Oh, my, but my mother had one. So you are sitting with the same medical conditions, mm-hmm. not necessarily genetic Mm-hmm. risk factor it's you're sitting with the same medical conditions can you see what happened to your mother because she didn't address the high blood pressure she didn't stop smoking and eventually she had a stroke or a heart attack so when i look at family history it's different in a degree to genetics mm-hmm. there are there are genetic conditions but they're few and far between like what Here we're looking at um, Down syndrome, those kinds. Genetic conditions are conditions that are uh, DNA and chromosome-based. Okay. So um, you have hereditary diseases that you inherit from your father uh, or your mother or from both. Yeah. So here we're looking at retinitis pigmentosa, those, those diseases that it's not common yeah. for one simple reason. Um, <clears throat> usually, if you have a, a DNA or a chromosomal defect, mm-hmm. those people have a, a short lifespan and it's usually not passed on. Hmm. Genes are... I always say code 
Okay. That lie. Now, they're not switched on. Mm-hmm. But we have the possibility through changes in our lifestyle to activate or deactivate genes. And I think that's what we need to understand. I think that's the difference between a family history and uh, genetics. Okay. Uh, in a layman's term, um, I think more learned medical professionals than me would maybe disagree and they can explain it a little bit better. But I think for the run of a mill person in the street is um, if there's a family history of heart disease, et cetera, et cetera, um, your risk is slightly higher. It doesn't mean that you're going to develop the condition. If it's a genetic thing um, and it's a gene that uh, is mutated in everyone, like thalassemia is another one yeah. that we can think and, about. And Breast cancer, there has to be a genetic component there. So with your breast cancer, we look at the BRCA genes, uh, BRCA1 and BRCA2. And it also speaks to risk. Okay. I think we can take um, Angelina Jolie maybe as an example. Her Her mother had breast cancer and she had the gene. Mm. A bracket gene, which increased her risk as she is getting older for developing breast cancer. Okay. It doesn't mean that it was 100% definite Mm. that she would have breast cancer. And she mitigated the risk to go for a mastectomy. She She tried to change the risk. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I think that's important. Does, does, does that make yeah. sense? That's an important concept to get across. But you know what? It also speaks to what we're talking about today. Yeah. Um, like in our businesses, to see whether everything is functioning and to see if we are optimal and where we can improve, you go and do testing. You do screening testing. Um, you do quality control. You go and investigate is my, my company, my factory, functioning optimally? Think about our cars. We send our cars for services and diagnostic tests. Mm-hmm. Um, my car tells me, okay, in two or 3,000 kilometers, you need to go and have a test. There's nothing wrong with my car. Mm. But I still so send it. it's all it. about early detection. It's early detection. Absolutely. I think that's also very important. Because the earlier you... you diagnose or pick up a problem, it's easier to manage disease then with different medications or lifestyle changes, et cetera, et cetera. Absolutely. Um, most of the conditions, and this is one of the things that we need to understand about screening tests. Screening tests are there to help us detect something that we can do something about. Yes. It, it, what is the use of doing a screening test if we can't do anything about it? Yeah. And that's why the coffee is not important and the points is not important when you go for your screen tests. It's, <laughs> and, and when you do opt to go for screening tests, 
which we all should, and please, I, I, I cannot emphasize this enough, you also need to know that you might have to make changes to mitigate the risk that you have. Um, and if you're not prepared to do that and follow through, why are you doing the screening test? Yeah. It's very interesting. Is there risks to screening tests? That's the question that I just thought of. So earlier you said to me we should maybe touch on false positives and of course, false of, yeah. negative tests. Yes. So, yes, there are risks involved. You might get a test that's not accurate. And this is what makes it so difficult for us. Mm. So, <clears throat> for men, let's, let's take a look at, at this one. Screening for prostate cancer. Mm -hmm. Sims, what do you think we do to screen for prostate cancer? Don't just stick something up. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you can stick a finger up there. But that is not the screening test that most men do. Okay. So So that's the common one that we all think of. Is 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 I think years ago that was the common one. Okay. Okay. I think it changed. It's changed. Okay. Um and it needs to change again. Mm -hmm. So when we look at prostate cancer your GP will most probably do a prostate-specific antigen blood test. It's in short, it's a PSA. Mm -hmm. Now, PSA is influenced by a multitude of factors, um, by sexual activity, by the size of the actual gland, uh, by wait, possible wait, infection. Back, back, back. Sexual activity. Does it mean if I had sex last night, my PSA will be different? Yes. Oh. Okay. Surprise. I didn't so know should that. So should, should you not have sex before? Or? Two days. Two days. Oh. Okay. Didn't 48 hours. 48 hours for men, no orgasm. Hmm. Because it does change for PSA. Interesting. So something new again today. So as I said, there's, there's lots of factors yeah. that can increase the PSA. That, you see, that's interesting because now I, I used to think just for like a screening, I just rock up, right? Mm. And boom, shaka boom, you get the results, good, bad. But now you're kind of telling me um, there's some prep work that I mm -hmm. sort of kind of have to do. So that's also interesting because that's also like it plays a role, which I didn't think of. Okay. So let's look further at PSA. For a good screening test, mm -hmm. we need to have a test. Let's say we're specifically screening for cancer. Yes. Okay. You have a test. You need a test that is sensitive enough mm -hmm. to identify cancer without giving you false negatives. In other words, it doesn't miss cancer. Okay. Okay. Um, and this is the problem with PSA tests today. That we picked up. Yeah. Well, it's been, it's been published mm -hmm. in peer review articles. So I'm going to give you some sh shocking statistics. A normal PSA count is between 0 0.5 or lower and 4. Isn't that also related to age? Yes, okay. absolutely. PSA, your prostate is a gland that 
in large as we get older. Just ask any uh, male in his 50s, 60s, and 70s. And one of the most common complaints that they have is, you know what, I can't, you know what, I, I, I have to stand close to the toilet. It's not like when you were a young boy or in your teens where you can just lay back and pee over the car. Mm. Now, you know what, you have to uh, make sure that there's something between you, otherwise you dribble on your shoes. <laughs> Ask Stefan. He laughed at me one day. <laughs> so it's horrible if you have slip slops <laughs> on and you're peeing at the side of a road and you splatter yourself. So um, I've, I'm, I've, I'm working on that. I'm doing my Kegels. So... Um, a PSA below one mm-hmm. is considered absolutely normal. A PSA below two is considered normal, and so is a PSA below three. Mm-hmm. But 10% of men with a PSA of below one will have prostate cancer, which is not identified by that test. Sure. When it's between one and four, 25% of men might have prostate cancer or will have prostate cancer, which is not detected by the test. So you can see that it's not a sensitive test. Mm-hmm. It doesn't give us false negatives, but it can, oh, it doesn't give us false positives, mm-hmm. but it can give us false negatives. So is it a sensitive screening test? No. If we look at a PSA of above four, of men have prostate cancer. Or a plain prostate infection. It can be. And that's the difference between a good screening test and a bad screening test. Because we're using PSA to screen for prostate cancer. But it doesn't tell us whether this is prostate cancer or prostatitis or benign prostatic hypertrophy. So it's a bad screening test. The gold standard for Screening for prostate cancer is an MRI. Hmm. Now, you cannot do an MRI on every single guy that walks every in. Every single year. Um, you know, think about the cost. Hmm. So, and, and that's the difference between good screening tests and bad screening hmm. tests. Hmm. So, what are the ones that we should be screening for on a regular basis? That we know if we detect it early we can actually do something about it that's not too invasive and where the benefit of knowing outweighs the risk or the consequences of the diagnosis. Okay. Sister Lise, do you want to lead us off? I want to start with colon cancer. Why? Because it's basically the same. The, the traditional screening for colon cancer was is a colonoscopy where they do an investigation with an endoscope to look for polyps or do biopsies, etc., etc. Okay. But why do we screen for colon cancer? Why do you think it's necessary for us to screen for colon cancer? I don't know. It's one of the screening tests. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think it's because of the... The uptake of colon cancer in... Okay, so we know that there's an increase, increase in, 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 in the risk yeah. of colon cancer, and that's got to do with lifestyle, um, what we eat, our microbiome that's yeah. being um, yeah. changed through pesticides and estrogens and xenoestrogens and 
those kind of things and smoking, et cetera, et cetera. But the reason why it's a good screening test is colon cancer is something that develops over a long period. Oh, that's right. And initially, it's asymptomatic. Yeah. It's colon cancer is a cancer that presents late. But isn't most health conditions uh, you are asymptomatic? Silent, yes. Yeah. And this is why we screen for them. Yeah. Exactly that same principle as I do screening tests and quality checks mm. because everything is coming off a conveyor belt, but somewhere there was a contamination. Yeah. And you know what? If I don't go and, go and do a random quality check, I'm never going to pick up that, you know what, these cans of tuna are contaminated with salmonella. Yeah. It's only when the symptom arises. Let's take. Let's think about what happened with Tiger Brands and Escort. Mm-hmm. They missed the quality control at yeah. some point. Mm. So the factory was contaminated. With disastrous. The, the, you know what? It was only when people started getting sick with listeria that oh my God, where's this coming from? Mm. Was it? And it was just, it wasn't just one person. Yeah. Suddenly there was 10 and then 100 and, you know, and they were all over the place. What did they have in common? They had bacon, for instance, or processed meat. Now, where's the problem? Was this at the store? Was it in the distribution line? Or was it at the factory? And eventually they traced it back to the factory. And what happened? They closed the factory. Yeah. If they did a random quality check and they picked that up, it would have never gotten through to the public. Yeah. So this is why you do screening tests. And colon cancer being one of the cancers that is slow to develop and late to present, that you can treat very effectively before it becomes an issue. But you don't screen for it. But how do we screen for it nowadays? Colonoscopy. But isn't Still the, the gold standard. Is it the fecal um, sample part of it now? I think um, when you talk about the fecal sample, um, we need to understand why we do a, 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 a fecal sample. So if there's a polyp or something that's benign, that's growing in your colon, and it gets irritated, it bleeds a little bit. If it starts developing cancer, those cancer cells start breaking down and usually they erode locally through a blood vessel or something like that. And then we might pick up occult blood in the yeah. stool. So occult blood in the stool is blood that we can't see with a naked eye. Mm-hmm. There shouldn't be blood in your stool. Okay. But occult blood is also not a sensitive test for cancer because you might have an annual fissure. Yeah, or um, hemorrhoid that's bleeding. And it's not cancerous, but we will pick up occult blood. So the gold standard is still visualization. Okay. And if we go and test for it early, which we should be doing, and we'll be talking about when we should be screening for this, if I pick it up early, it's as simple as during the colonoscopy, they just remove a polyp. It hasn't spread to the surrounding tissue. You might have 
a cancer of uh, the colon or the rectum, but it's been removed before it became a serious health condition. And that's why we do screening tests. Okay. So you, we spoke about colon cancer. When do we screen for this? From the age of 45. Um, or if you have some or another symptom. Any kind of rectal bleeding yeah. should send off um, alarm bells. Bell. Yeah. And any kind of changes in bowel habits yeah. and inconsistency of stool should be a warning bell, which we don't heed. Remember that one time that we spoke about the different types of stool? Yeah, there's like seven types, isn't there? Yes. So, <laughs> well done. You know what? We need to know what's normal. How, yes. many, how many people actually look down into the toilet and see what is lying in there? What does it look like? Because I don't know what it, I know what it feels like. Sometimes it's a bit knobbly. Sometimes it's nice and smooth and it's, oh, that, that was delicious. Um, you, you get that? <laughs> <laughs> Have you never had a bowel? <laughs> he just said that was delicious. Have you never had a bowel movement that right? it was just, oh, that felt great. <clears throat> if you ask Stefan, he wakes me up sometimes at four o'clock in the morning dancing around because, you know, as someone that battles with constipation, he just had a smooth bowel movement and it was like, <laughs> My God, that feels so much better. Okay. So, um, colonoscopies, gastroscopies, we, we start doing them from the age of 45, okay. in my opinion. If you have a history of colon cancer in your family, remember, your risk is altered. Mm-hmm. So then, um, if there's a diagnosis of colon cancer in your direct family, a mother, a father, a brother, or a sister – then you start screening earlier and more regularly. Hmm. Um, I think the screening guidelines say that you only start from the age of 55. With? Sorry? Um, Colonoscopies and gastroscopies. Now, that brings us to breast cancer. And the reason I'm immediately jumping to breast cancer is like with so many other cancers, colon cancer included, the age where we start seeing these cancers are becoming younger and younger. Mm-hmm. There was an article that was published um, um, in the last couple of months that spoke to a higher incidence of breast cancer in women, in younger women, and um, advanced stage cancer. So cancer actually, and we need to understand this, and this is one of the things that we do at the T clinic, is as your hormone level starts declining, it leads to changes. Our biological lifespan is 38 years. And, you know, as we go beyond that, our risk for developing the diseases of aging, which includes cancer, um, hypertension, diabetes, cognitive and bone decline, brain decline, becomes higher. Think of your dog. Your dog is healthy and then suddenly after an age, he develops a cancer over a month and Mm. he's dead. Mm. And that's a disease of aging. Mm. So with humans, it's exactly the same. 
Um, breast cancer is another one that yeah. we need to, to screen for. Sister Elise, there's new guidelines when it comes to breast cancer. I don't think we necessarily agree with them, but what are the... Uh, 40 years, you start screening at 40 years. Okay. And if there's risk factors or your risk is increased, you need to discuss it with your doctor and go for a screening test. Can I go for a, a mammogram at the age of 25 if I want? You can. And you what does that give me? Why? A baseline. A baseline. And I, I'm glad that you say that. Yeah. It, it gives it's us a baseline. It's something that we say in the practice. Please go for the mammogram so that we have a baseline from where to work from in future. You never know what is, what is abnormal if you don't first know what's normal. Yeah. And that's important. Yeah. Um, so how do we do breast screening? There's a couple of ways in which we can well, do it. Well, um, you can self-examine if you know exactly how to do it and then um, get a healthcare provider to do your examination for you and teach you how to do a proper breast scan or screening uh, examination. And then there's um, thermal imaging that is being done by your radiography departments as well as a sonar as well as a mammogram, which yeah, is an I, X-ray. I, I think and we've, we've, I, we've seen this in practice. Um, women are sometimes scared of going for a mammogram because they had a bad experience. I've never had one. No, I've, I've had not. other things squeezed and tucked, but uh, <laughs> never my boobs. So is it painful? It's extremely uncomfortable and I think it's the in between between if you have small breasts and if you have large breasts if you have small breasts they really battle to get you properly positioned to take a, um, a readable so x-ray literally, they, they literally squeeze, squeeze the, yeah, the breast between, between two, two plates yes and then um if you so, are large or well endowed, like myself and some peewee, there's sometimes not space on that plate to do a proper screen of the breast. So, yes, it's uncomfortable and it's repositioning and it's really not easy. It's the same. It's, it's personal. It's your private parts, you know. It's like the pap smear as well. It's not a comfortable screening test where they just take blood and there you go. I, I, I think let's, uh, let's move over to the pap, the pap smear yeah. because I've done thousands yeah. in, in my training as a, a, a medical student and then as a, a, a registrar um, it's an intimate test. Yeah. And I think that's where the discomfort comes from. Yeah. Um, if you use the correct speculum, if you use the correct technique, it's painless. Yeah. Or coaching through the whole test. It, tell the patient what, to exp what they're going to experience and coach them through the whole thing. The other thing is nowadays you don't need a speculum actually. Um, you do a freehand pap smear with a little brush and that's good enough as long as you touch the cervix if there's still a cervix. But you know what? Come on. I've, I know 
how difficult it can be to locate the cervix. Yeah. Um, if you have a lot of volume in the vulva, it's sometimes hard, especially if a cervix is high or retro. And that's where the, the discomfort comes from, is to go and search for that cervix, to have a targeted sample taken. Okay, so what do we screen for when we look at a pap smear? We screen for atypical cells on the cervix. We screen for HPV, which is human papillomavirus. Which, which is can cause, cause atypical cells, am yes, I correct? Yes, and that can also lead to cervical cancer. And it's one of the biggest killers yeah. um, in sub-Saharan Af- if you Africa. Have a, if you have a certain type of HPV strain or it's been detected, then your chances of developing um, cervical cancer is up to 50%. And then also with this examination, etc., we can do a pH test. pH is very important in the vagina because we need an acidic vagina to have a healthy vagina. Otherwise, you can be prone to infections as well as looking at hormonal changes in the vaginal mucosa. That's during the pap smear. The results will tell you that. If the vagina is... If you ask for them. If you ask for them. Usually it's just a cervical smear. Cervical smear, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So when do we start? Sampiwi, have you ever had a pap smear done? No. Are you sexually active? Yes. You do. Come see me. (laughs) It's as simple as that. (laughs) If you are sexually active, if you start sexual activity at the age of 15, you have your first pap smear at the age of 15. For one simple reason, human papillomavirus causes cervical cancer. It's, it's irrefutable. It causes cervical cancer. And if you don't go and look for it, you might lose as the only treatment, you might lose your uterus. At a young age. My sister, um, who works with us in the practice, um, had to have a hysterectomy at the age of 30 because... That's heading home. I'm turning 30 very soon. uh, Look, she had two babies and um, yearly pap smears. And every year her pap smear results were normal. The following year, she suddenly had a sin for lesion. Can we say that's also a silent disease? It is silent because yeah. you don't know about it, yeah. but it's something that you can detect. And this is why we screen for it. Yeah. It's something that you can detect and it's something that you can treat before it causes a problem. So if you have a sin one lesion, Mm-hmm. which is the beginning of the changes, it's simple. We do an acid treatment. If it progressed, <coughs> I beg your pardon, if it progressed to a sin 2 lesion, we treat it in the gynae's rooms with a small little excision. It's called a loop um, excision. Um, and there we use it. It looks like um, a... a a little wire, mm. and we just scrape and we remove those damaged cells and in a way, you, got, uh, you know, it, it's perfect. But it, when it gets to a SIN 3, it becomes a bigger procedure. And when it's a SIN 4, the, the treatment of choice is 
full on hysterectomy. I think to explain the sin part of the lesion is it's how deep those cells has penetrated, that abnormal cells has penetrated into the tissue. So your sin one is just on a surface. Sin two is then a little bit deeper penetrated, sin three deeper, and then sin four is... And then it starts spreading to the surrounding tissue. So cervical smear screening, if you are sexually active, you start with it when you become sexually active. Okay, Definitely from your 20s. Once every two years, once every year, Elise. What is some the... some say every three years, but I I don't agree with that. Well, um, here we saw it with with CJ specifically. Yeah, she yeah. had a pap smear one year, absolutely normal. Yeah. Next year, sorry, you have to have a hysterectomy in one year. Yeah. Okay. Then I think the stuff that we tend to forget, skin. Absolutely. We live in Africa. <clears throat> we are exposed to so much sunlight. Besides the environmental pollutants, the smoking, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm-hmm. So, basal cell carcinoma, melanoma, and actinic keratoses, which will develop into a basal cell carcinoma, is so common. So you go once a year and have your Doctor, preferably an experienced dermatologist, take a look at your skin from head to toe, which includes the scalp and under your feet. Mm. We forget that we can get cancer on non-sun exposed areas. Yeah. It usually starts presenting with a little piece of dry skin mm-hmm. that, you know, it, you, you scrape away in it and it's gone. And in a couple of weeks or a month or two later, it returns in the same spot. Mm. But when it starts becoming something that's constantly there or a little sore that doesn't want to heal properly, now it starts showing, okay, this is something far more sinister than just a little piece of dry skin. Yeah. Some of the other screening tests that we should be doing are for diseases that is completely preventable and that you can change through lifestyle. And here we're thinking of doing a lipid screen. In other words, testing for your cholesterol. Cholesterol is not necessarily bad. And there's a lot of debate in the medical fraternity about cholesterol and what the correct levels are. But, you know, it suffice to say it's still accepted that if your total cholesterol is above five, um, the distribution of your cholesterol between HDL, LDL, which is uh, good cholesterol versus bad cholesterol, and your triglycerides start changing. HDL, which is a good cholesterol, should be above one. Um, LDL cholesterol should be below three. It's the bad cholesterol. And your triglycerides, which is the oily, fatty part of cholesterol, should be below 1.7. If that starts changing you know that you need to incorporate lifestyle changes because if you do it soon enough, Mm -hmm. you don't need the prescription medications which have side effects. Mm. Okay. Blood pressure is another one. Blood pressure is silent. We don't know when your blood pressure is high. Um, You don't have to present with headaches 
blurry vision, um, when you have high blood pressure. How many patients have we had with blood pressures of 180 over 140 with absolutely no symptoms? And then we say, you know what, actually I should be admitting you to hospital. Yes. We've had a woman come in one day with a blood pressure of 210 over 170. 70. Um, no symptoms. Yeah. Um, sorry, this is a medical emergency. I, I need to have you admitted. Mm. But I feel fine. And it took us four months mm. to start controlling her blood pressure on three, four, actually, it took I four different remember. medications, yeah. um, combination medications, sure. four different combination medications without her having any symptoms. She was a prime candidate to have a stroke, not a heart attack stroke. I often ask my patients, what's worse? To have, If you have to choose between a heart attack and a stroke, which one are you going to choose? I choose the heart attack because, you know what, at, in a very short period of time, I can have an artificial heart mm. or for the time being while I'm waiting for a heart transplant, they can give me a pig's heart or something like that. But I do not want to sit um, in an incontinence bed dribbling, uh, not being able to swallow. Yeah. Uh, because I've had a stroke. So that's another important screening test. And then obviously the other one is we need to take a look at what is happening with our glucose and our insulin levels. Yeah. And this is a simple blood test that we need to do. Um, <clears throat> we can carry on and we can say that, you know what, some of the other important screening tests, and this is one I think that the majority of people actually just completely overlook. And that's visiting your optometrist on a regular basis every two years, whether you're wearing glasses or not, because we can see so much um, underlying conditions by uh, mm -hmm. examining the eyes, uh, taking a look at the retina, et cetera, et cetera, can give us a very good idea of what's happening in other systems in the body. Mm -hmm. And here we're specifically thinking mm -hmm. of hypertension and diabetes. Yeah. The other thing that I think that we overlook is doing urinary screening, yeah. taking a look at the health of our kidneys. And liver. For me, the kidneys is really one of the most important organs in the body, if not the most important one. For one simple reason, <coughs> it's, in <coughs> it's in control of everything that happens in your body. The kidneys is the the organ that picks up that, um, you know, what there's imbalances, whether it's blood pressure or glucose, whether it's electrolytes, uh, it, it then sends out um, messengers, whether it's neurotransmitters, etc., etc., that alter how your body reacts to the internal environment. Mm -hmm. um, and kidney decline, and we see it so often in our patients in the practice, where we identify a decreased kidney function. And then we say to them, you know what, according to your blood test, you're a, uh, you're a, a stage one chronic kidney disease patient or even a stage two chronic kidney. And it's now they go into a panic. Yeah. Um, and the problem with kidneys is it's very difficult to restore kidney function. Mm. You can maintain it. And that's why I think this is a good screening test for us to do. 
Um, so just the normal U and E. If if you want to Elise, do you think um, normal urine dipsticks can give us an indication of what's happening with a kidney? No, not really. Not really. <coughs> there we really pick up if there's a asymptomatic um, bladder infection, infection or, or whether they have severe diabetes. Exactly. Or like yeah, not really on a dipstick, but that gives us an, us an indication of do we need to further investigate as well. So. Yeah. I think another one that we tend to shy away from is hearing tests. Yeah. Um, Cognitive decline is directly associated with a decrease in your hearing. Um, And I see it. Um, I I find that it alters my social behavior. Um, I do not like to sit in a noisy restaurant or be in a place where there's background noise because I can't participate in conversations. So now I start shying away from them. So I start isolating myself um, from the environment uh, beyond me. Mm. And that leads and is associated with a higher incidence of dementia and Parkinson's. So, you know, what? screening your hearing Every couple of years, it's such an easy thing to do. You just go and sit in a booth and listen to sounds. It's like playing a video game, just you, you, you don't rely on your eyes. Mm-hmm. Okay. My, my God, I can't believe it. An hour has flown that quickly. <laughs> um, let's, let's just sum up. Please start treating your health like you treat your career and your relationships. Um, book the time, make the effort to go and screen for diseases that are changeable, preventable, or that is silent in onset. Um, As Elise have pointed out, uh, prevention and early treatment is far easier and less expensive than finding someone when it's already symptomatic and the procedures that you have to go through or the treatment that you have to have becomes far more invasive and far more expensive. If you want to know more or if you want to have a health screen, please visit your your healthcare provider, your GP, uh, or contact us at the T-Clinic on 010-824-1393. That brings us to the end of the show. I, 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 seriously, I, I cannot believe that we've gone through this hour so quickly. Next week, we will be back with one of our other babies that um, we've identified and which we are trying to keep as small as possible. This is not something that we want to see progress. And that's burnout amongst patients. What are the symptoms of burnout? What, how does it affect us and the people around us and what we can do to prevent it. We'll be joined by Dr. Ansi Ghos, a clinical psychologist. And if you remember the previous podcast that we've done with her, it was riveting and we all learned so much. So we're really looking forward to next week with Dr. Ansi Ghos uh, talking with us about burnout. Until next week, we wish you all the best in health. 
That was the Tea Health Show, empowering you with knowledge. Download all previous episodes on your favorite podcast platform. The Tea Health Show is brought to you by Tea Clinic.